welcome everyone to a, a new episode of The Art Business. Uh, and my guest today is Dongmin Kim, who is a, a, a alumna of the MA Art Business at Suburbs Institute of Art. Uh, Dongmin actually uh, was in the class of 2020, which is significant because that was uh, one of the COVID years when many students across the world, I think, struggled a lot with their studies. We might talk about what Dong Min gained from that experience as well as maybe suffered from that experience along with everybody else. It's quite interesting actually, because Dong Min has just reminded me that um, uh, that Alex Bass, who was the subject of an earlier podcast, was in her year at the Institute. Uh, and Dong Min currently works at Art Logic, which anyone who's working in the art world will have heard of Art Logic. They're, they're pretty much the leading art technology company that designs and develops tech solutions for art galleries and art fairs. And Dongmin, at the same time, amazingly, and this is why I wanted her to be a guest, she runs her own photography business at weekends. Um, and just to so show where she is with that at the moment, she recently won uh, the much coveted portrait category for rugby photographer of the, photographer of the year 2022, and is the official club photographer for Richmond, Rugby Football Club. Those of you who know rugby, we're talking about Rugby Union. I think that's right, Dong Min. Yeah. <laughs> rugby yeah. Union rather than Rugby League. I think a lot of our listeners, because we're very, probably I think there's a lot of nationalities listen to this. Um, you know, a lot of them aren't going to be New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, France. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the big <laughs> nations that kind of actually follow rugby. Uh, we have a no lot of North Americans who maybe aren't so into like rugby union, they're into the uh, NFC and so on. So um, it'd be very interesting, I think, for them to learn a little bit more about what this what this amazing game is. Um, but it's rugby union anyway. And in 2021, Domin started working for the Barbarians Rugby Football Club. Again, any of you know anything about rugby, will know that the Barbarians are, it's a very strange institution and correct me if I'm wrong, Don Min, but as I understand it, it's basically made up of um, international players called the the Barbarians or the Barbars. As yeah, called. literally. So yeah, it's and, an invitational um, club made up of some of the best internationals and it's always um, there at the end of the autumn, t uh, autumn test series and the beginning of the summer international test series and they recently set up a women's side as well which is really great yeah and as you'll see don don min i think one of the most pioneering things about don min's work uh, particularly with her photography is the the kind of gender neutral um basis of it so so she's as interested in um in in, in photographing uh, women in action i think one might put it uh, as as the as the male players and any of you who are currently watching the women's Euro football will will realise how significantly I think uh, the 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 levels I think of the of, of professionalism and and skill are, are really up there now and and I, a guy a guy when I was watching the women's football the other day said I didn't think I don't talk about watching women's football anymore I talk I talk about watching football <laughs> and and it just happens to be women or men you know. Um, yeah, it's and the same, that's I think, with the rugby. Important. Yeah, yeah, because like there was this sort of like um, uh, like default to kind of. I mean, there was this sort of attitude and tendency to create men as a default, but these days, like when people say rugby, like 
you can't really tell whether it's men or women and then you sometimes have to ask them like specifically or they'll like drop like a player name like they'll suddenly say Poppy Clay or Emily Scarrett and you'll be like ah it's a women's game <laughs> exactly exactly and and I don't think um this is this just a question I wanted to ask you actually Dongmin um we've heard a lot recently about like transgender people like women um uh men who are, who are transitioning to women uh, have been banned from women's athletics and I haven't heard that happening yet with football or rugby do you know if there's any have there been any issues according to you with that yet about like whether whether male men transitioning to women should be playing women's rugby or whether they'd have an unfair advantage as was decided with athletics so I'm going to confess here and say I'm very <laughs> ignorant about this. I don't actually know whether any rulings or laws have been passed in any yeah. of the rugby unions about this. Yeah. Um, I, would I, don't, I don't know of any kind of famous players that, for example, in the football or the, or the rugby that, that are um, transitional people or transgender people. So um, yeah. it's just been very high profile recently with the athletics, but no doubt that that will come at some point. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think it is so very telling that we don't have any trans rugby players yeah. and it kind of goes to show that we still need to do a lot of work to try yeah. and make the um, game more inclusive to all the different genders out there. Yeah, exactly. It's not the end of the, it's not the end of the road in terms of equality. Once you've got women being treated equally to men, there's a lot of other issues we oh, need absolutely. to think about. Um, and, and, and just to continue this intro, uh, Dongmin initially began building her photography career for clients in theatre, um, but eventually found many similarities between the theatrical physicality, this is Dongmin's own words, of rugby. And, 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 I, and I think if you look at her photographs online, which I will urge you to do, and we'll give you some links um, bit during the course of the podcast, you, you will see that what she's really interested in, the lens that she's looking through is very exciting and catching almost these theatrical dramatical moments uh, at key points of the game. That seems to me one of the skills, one of many skills that Domin has in her photography, which, which as, as an art person, as an art historian, an art critic, that's what interests me in Domin's work. It's not just, and this is something that we'll maybe discuss later, Domin, to what extent, and this is true of a lot of photography, to what extent is this reportage that you're just basically trying to photograph things so that people can read in the newspapers or online the next day about what happened in the game. But to what extent do you actually see this almost like as an art form that is capturing something <laughs> almost like a, a, a portraitist is trying to catch the soul of the person as it were. And I, I think your prize winning work that we'll talk about later for the, for the rugby portrait of the year is that it really has that kind of element in it, but we'll talk about that later. Um, and, and, and I know that you're also interested in photographing like musicals and, and ballets. And I think a lot yeah. of this began, I would talk about this later um, while you were an undergraduate studying, I think mainly German at, at, at UCL, at University College yeah, London, exactly. where you, you joined a lot of societies and, and it wasn't basically because you wanted to be an actor or, or, or whatever, it was because you wanted to photograph, I think. So it actually started off with like, I wanted to act and produce, um, but first of all, like the standard of, um, the standard of performance talent at UCLs, like drama societies, musical theater societies and live music, they were very, very high. And I kind of realized that early on after going to watch a couple of the shows and thinking, okay, let's find a different way for me to be involved. But I actually um, 
loved, uh, I actually loved producing um, the musicals. I loved being able to call the shots. I loved um, how involved you were in almost every facet of the um, production. And also, I think one of the things I really enjoyed the most about um, being a producer was um, the visual elements of it, particularly when you were marketing your musical. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Domin, we're going to begin with our usual. Um, the listeners are very, very interested, I think, in the in 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 other interests of the of the, of the guests. So, um, your favourite city? I am going to be extremely biased and um, talk about all the cities I've lived in. So, mm. um, it's a toss up between Seoul, Munich, LA, and. A bit of a wild card is Stockholm because I've not lived there yet, um, and but it's a really um, it's probably one of my favourite holiday destinations because it's you're so close to nature and I'm also really into open water swimming and Stockholm's like geographical infrastructure is probably the best for open people who like having city breaks but also want to swim. Yeah, and that that I, I guess that kind of almost also. So so basically, it sounds like you're someone who 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 loves the dynamic of of all urban life. Who do, doesn't have a particular favourite one. Uh, and you've also already spoken answered the second question that I always ask people: is Do you have any kind of favourite out of town locations? And you're talking about wild swimming. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Where where have you wild swum? <laughs> um, mainly back home in Munich because fun fact Munich has actually one of the best um, standards for outdoor water hygiene particularly for swimming and so that's why it's lakes and some of the ponds there are really really um, popular particularly in the summer and like even in the winter when people do cold water swimming. <laughs> it sounds very kind of Germanic to me my son spent a year <laughs> of his, of his King's um, undergraduate degree where he was studying German as well he spent it in Berlin but I remember he he said that they they he and his friends went out to these places and he talked about how 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 kind of masochistic the Germans can be with their kind of um, <laughs> serious about their hiking and it's you know and the uh the, the wild swimming and so on so yeah um and um uh, what are any any favorite buildings are you uh, you know you that into architecture i mean any like the the stadiums that you've been to or the concert venues or is there any kind of particular building that you like i absolutely loved the la memorial coliseum in la as the yeah. name probably suggests it was Oh, gosh. I mean, I do think it is also just because of the fact that it was in L.A. under the L.A. sun, which is which hits completely different to the sun in anywhere in anywhere else in the world, essentially. And um, the colors and also the fact that there's this um, I don't know if anybody's actually been to the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, but at one end of the stadium, there's like an actual like marble colonnade over in one side and like if you walk underneath those arches there's actually like mosaics and like gold plating on it it's so extravagant it's this simultaneously marries european kitsch grandeur with loud american boisterous <laughs> entertainment it's incredible that venue that's really well described I didn't go to it when when I was in LA, um, but I did go to the um, the architecture is amazing, of course, in LA. And uh, I did go to a classical music concert at the is it the Disney? I think it's yes, yeah, in the, downtown, uh, isn't it? Yeah, that and that was that was a, that was a beautiful building as as well. Um, and um, 
and then music do you have a are you are you going to answer has most people seem to answer that I, I have an eclectic taste or is there any what, what what's on your what's on your kind of um spotify playlist <laughs> at the moment if you use it <laughs> well i'm sorry to be like everybody else but it is also quite eclectic just because like nice. there's everything there from k-pop to musical ah. theater um thing i constantly listen to is probably the bonnie and clyde uh soundtrack from frank wildhorn i absolutely love the songs in there like it's i think it's also because a lot of people say um i remind them of clyde well clyde in the musical that is characterization <laughs> <laughs> and is that one that you've actually photographed have you actually been to a production that you photographed that particular musical of bonnie and clyde Unfortunately not, but there was actually a really recent production of it. I only saw it like three weeks ago and it was absolutely incredible. And it was kind of like my dream cast there as well. Like my favourite actress, um, Frances Maylie McCann, well, favourite musical theatre actress right now in London, um, was playing Bonnie. And my favourite, yeah, musical theatre actor, Jordan Luke Gage, was playing Clyde. And I was like, I can't believe somebody actually like put all my dreams together and put this on stage like it was definitely a production I would have loved to have photographed though the visuals in it were like very gritty and stripped back but you know that was very representative of like how Bonnie and Clyde the characters actually grew up in like abject poverty yeah and uh, I remember musicals I always thought were kind of like lowbrow um and uh, you know I used to go to <laughs> opera and I, I and then then I think yeah it was basically my at my son's school they they had very very good music departments and used to combine with the the the, the girls school down the road and and they did these amazing productions of things like Oklahoma and I I you know I, I went to see it because my you know he was in it and and I fell in love with it I, I thought wow this is just you know, and, and I, I kind of downloaded it and you you listen and listen and listen that the, the the just the, the 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 melodies are so clever if I can put it that way and you know these these people who write musicals I think and obviously Leonard Bernstein is kind of one of the top writers with West Side oh, Story absolutely, yeah. he was also of course a serious con classical music conductor and composer at the same time so I agree with you I, I don't see why you know and I think that that comes out in your career as well to date that it's there's no reason why you can't turn your mind your your attention to all sorts of different things and we we should get rid of this notion of high and low culture I always think absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of art um can you maybe a way into this Donmin to take us now into the kind of core of the podcast uh the art business is um can, what were your kind of earliest art world experiences? Um, can you remember anything where you suddenly thought, I like art? <laughs> I remember with actually very, very dazzling clarity. Um, so I lived in Munich when I was between the ages of three until six because my dad was doing his sabbatical there. And he took our family to loads of art museums while we were living the European dream. And my earliest memory of Europe in general was like, inside an Italian cathedral, like filled to the brim with Raphael and Da Vinci and um, Michelangelo. And, you know, and also like French art museums, like which were bursting with color from Monet's and Picasso's. And, but the artworks that took my breath away were always the large scale classical paintings by old masters of like battle scenes where, you know, you saw like a massive claustrophobia clash of like bodies, like, you know, all on top of each other. And you know what, actually, I think this is why I love photographing rugby because it just brings I was about back. to say, I could just see suddenly your photographs with these, any of any of listeners who have never 
seen a rugby match, it's very physical <laughs> and yeah. quite violent. I remember when I used to play rugby at school, I made sure that I made sure that I was a good sprinter so that I would never be a forward because I couldn't stand the <laughs> idea of being at the bottom of these rucks of where bodies are on top of you because I get quite claustrophobic. So I always managed to stay on the left wing. And <laughs> very oh, so rarely. You back three. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Oh, what so you played you? back three. So yeah. like they're always on the wings. Yeah, always on the wings. And uh, yeah, and, and 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 likewise in things like hockey and football, I was always for some reason I'm I'm right-handed and right-footed, but I, I'm slightly ambidextrous and ambi whatever the, whatever the foot thing is. So I'm <laughs> reasonable in the on the left wing and hockey as well, where you had to turn your hockey stick round. Don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever played hockey. Do by the way, do you play sports yourself? As you're so interested in it. Um, actually, I don't. It's swimming obviously is a, is an important hobby for you, but. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so I don't do any like team sports or anything yeah. that requires a ball and hand-eye coordination. Um, yeah. It's actually one of my biggest regrets not having tried rugby while I was at university because UCL had like a really thriving women's section. Yeah. And the great thing about that women's section was that it was a really huge mix between beginners and um, more seasoned players, like players who'd been playing since they were children. And I think, and you know, they were a really friendly bunch. I loved working with the women's, uh, with UCL women's rugby. Yeah, I remember in the early 90s at the a college I used to lecture at in classical studies, um, I remember I remember suddenly realising one of my students was, a, a female student, was was a rugby player. She started saying about, you know, playing rugby. And then I'm just showing thing, how things have changed. It seemed really weird to me, you know. And, and, you know, so things have really, really changed, I think, in that last 30 year period and it wasn't just me you know so fellow students would kind of slightly tease her about it they they had stereotypes that oh she must be a lesbian you know all of these stereotypes yeah. about women doing sports that I'm sure that you've encountered yourself in your you know and, it, and I, I honestly don't think people even think that anymore which is great so I think sport is a very important thing for bringing gender equality about Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a, rugby in particular is like a very body positive sport because, you know, you look at a match day 15 squad, no one's the same shape. Uh, you, you need so many different heights. You need so many different weights to play all the different, to fill out all the different positions. Like, I think that's also another thing I really enjoy photographing about it because no one part, no two people are the same on a pitch. Like, it makes it so much more exciting having that much more variety in it. I hadn't thought about that. So, so the forwards, uh, you know, I used to make sure I didn't eat too much at school as well because I realised <laughs> that people were constantly in the touch shot. They were in the they were the forwards because um, you need a lot of weights for these these um the, the these parts of that rugby game. Don't want to get too technical here for the listeners, but you know, <laughs> by not eating, you're you're a fast runner and you're not going to get so involved in the in a kind of uh, you know the, the the more violent aspects of the game, as it were. Um, you know what? Oh yeah. You know what? Actually, um, the backs are often teased as being called cheap to feed. So you're not wrong there. Yeah, that's really funny. Um, and 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 also sort of cheap to buy drinks for, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely. I think I don't know. Is it still quite a kind of after-match drinking culture in rugby, or, or 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 because it's become more professional now? Are the trainers and sports scientists do they tend to tell people off if they drink too much? I mean, I can only speak from an elite perspective. 
I don't know what it's like in the grassroots and students. It's probably a lot more, I'd like to hope it's a bit more lenient there. <laughs> um, but yeah, with elite uh, matches, you tend to, you don't tend to see too much heavy drinking afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Because you just I, get up and play properly the next day. <laughs> yeah, and also like in general, you're seeing a lot more people um, who don't drink actually being actively involved in the game and also mm -hmm. the socials afterwards. So like, you know, we try to remove that element of peer pressure. Like, for example, um, I know a couple of Muslim friends now who are in uh, involved in rugby and because of their faith, they don't drink alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And that, I, I was listening to Moeen Ali, who's, a, who's an England cricketer and, and Muslim, and he was saying it's actually the cricket culture is still actually quite boozy. And he said that you can feel quite uncomfortable. So I don't tend to go out with the team in the evenings. I know that by the time they've had a few drinks, I'm going to start feeling really uncomfortable. And that's that's quite a shame, I think. But I think I think yeah. generally in culture, you know, the the non-alcoholic thing and the, 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 the range of drinks that are now available um has really improved in that i think it's much you know pubs uh, a pub i go to they sell out all the time of the of the low alcohol beer i drink and and i said oh, i'm surprised by that he said you'd be surprised at how many people actually have this now you know so i think that's another that's thing that's changing in the yeah. culture <laughs> sorry that's really nice to hear actually yeah, yeah. no i think it's i think all of that is changing you know for the better and the kind of excessive behavior is hopefully beginning to you know disappear uh, the, the, the reason i'm making the thing about that is, is as you say it's it's it seems okay but it's a, it actually divides people because people of certain faiths or maybe they just don't like drinking um don't like the effects it has on them but if you don't it can really it's make it can really exclude you from from the, yeah. these teams it is a team thing you know um which is yeah, definitely i know that for a fact that like some places some um non-alcoholic individuals um don't really like going to team socials outside of the clubhouse like you know because it'll always end in alcohol so <laughs> I think that's definitely something that kind of needs to be looked into there should definitely be more like socials that aren't revolving around alcohol or have like the opportunity for too much alcohol <laughs> at this point we probably put most of our listeners have probably switched off and gone for <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. We weren't we weren't preaching anything. It's just interesting because a lot of people. I think we're talking about things like the the, the gender thing and the transgender thing in particular, and, and 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 alcohol in society, which a lot of people it's not cool to talk about. So hopefully that's quite interesting uh, for people <laughs> listening as well. Um, and 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 the next question, it, you kind of slightly answered this really um, when you talked about battle scenes in old master paintings. You know, maybe that's the the, the way you look at the, the rugby matches and enjoy. Look at photographing rugby but can you remember at any point when you when you started enjoying photography or had a photographic eye can you remember your first camera or, and you know did, was that given to you by your parents or did you get into it yourself so as a child I've always been much more visually inclined whereas like my brother was always much more articulate with his words than I ever was and like in my head, when I'm ever when I'm trying to express an idea or a concept or just even my own emotions, like I conjure up pictures and visual shape, visual concepts and shapes as opposed to uh, words. And something about photography as a medium and its accessibility and its concise effectuality really clicked with me. And um, so a little context, because I've lived and moved around in uh, South Korea, Germany and then Northern Ireland, but all before I was seven years old. And, you know, as a child that young, having three very different languages like buzzing around your head, it can really confuse you. Mm. So I think 
pictorial, I think I was just always more visually inclined as a kid. And I think something about cameras really fascinated me because they just captured this like one moment in your life and it's there forever kind of. And um, I think I was just so mesmerized by the whole technology of it and also kind of used photographs when I was really little to kind of understand people better. Yeah, um, and, and of course, photography is very, very different as when you were being brought up. Presume, you know, when I when I was when I was a kid, I remember my first camera was a, this little thing called a brownie, which is a little box camera that has a little roller <laughs> film in it. And I was oh, so excited because my dad gave. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no. I think I've even got some early photographs of me holding with this little strap around my head with this little box camera in front of me. Um, but that's what they were like. You know, it was, it was before you actually had the the, the, the the typical sort of camera that we still see today. It hasn't actually changed mm -hmm. that much, the actual camera body, it seems to me. But obviously what has changed, and when I was doing my PhD in, in Pompeii, photographing the wall paintings in the ancient Roman city, um, I was... Um, I was using color transparencies. You know, there's no such thing as digital then, and and I it, I can't tell listeners how difficult that is because you don't know whether these things are exposed properly until you actually get them developed and they come back for the laboratory. And quite often, oh, I'd have gosh. to go back into these ancient houses and ruins and retake photographs because it somehow hadn't exposed properly. You know. Uh, and, and I think digital photography has so revolutionized, um, you know, the photography for us all. Would you like to say a little bit more about what types of camera and what types of photography or, or at what point did you did you start? You know, was it when you went to UCL that you started yeah. seriously? Do you want to talk more about your experience at UCL then? With yeah, so the reason why I started photography, I mean, I was always interested in cameras, but more just like messing about with them, nothing particularly serious. But the first time I was like genuinely inspired to um, become a photographer was after I saw uh, after the um, winter musical was being advertised and the girl that photographed it, Tyrion Jenkins, she's actually one of my biggest inspirations and probably the reason I am the way I am right now. Um, I mean, my career is the way it is right now. And <clears throat> she shot these incredible um, 1920s prohibition era um, themed photographs of the music of the winter musical. And I just remembered looking at those and thinking, I really want to do something like this. I want to create something as artistic as this. I want to help capture memories like this. And I also want to like, um, and I also want to help advertise musicals like this. And I think that was also where I I really caught the musical theatre bug. Yeah. Do you want to say, have you got any any memories or particularly, you know, interesting memories about the ph photography you started doing at UCL? Um, like, I know that you were you were going to gigs at the union there, I, th I think, and photographing yeah. like, rock musicians and you were photographing the, is that when you started, It was that the point when you started going to the women's rugby? Yeah, so um, I first started out in theatre and did loads of, and shot loads of musicals, I even shot an opera at one point, mm. and I... I think I just loved, I particularly loved the musicals that had very fast paced dance numbers. Yeah. I thought they were the most exciting um, parts of a musical to photograph. And then there was one day there was like an opening from our school magazine, which was also, um, which was also another club I was like really well involved with in UCL. 
um, to photograph the London varsity matches. And they were like the biggest um, rugby matches in uh, for any um, clubs and societies in at UCL. And that was actually the first time I'd ever watched women's rugby. And I was, like, was, was there anyone else? I imagine that there probably weren't that many other people actually photographing them. No, there weren't that many um, back then. I think there were like a couple of student photographers, but we never really got to see their works or maybe their works had been used for um, marketing campaigns, but like behind graphics and the like and heavily edited afterwards. Um, yeah, you know, back then we, I didn't really know other um, sports photographers. And I suppose when you start out, uh, start getting into any kind of um, hobby or um, career, like it takes you a while to kind of research um, the landscape of it and find out who's who. And yeah. And it sounds, sounds from what you were saying earlier, it sounds as though you might have been brought up in a family that took you to art galleries and went to yeah. different cities you went to. So you had, you grew up that kind of cultural capital, if we can put it that way, where you were, you, you it was just quite natural to go to art galleries and cathedrals and look at the art in them and, and, and so on. Um, but I don't think at any point you've ever studied um, the history of art as an academic study as subject. So I was just going to, you know, forward a little bit now to um, what made you, what made you, choose the MA in art business at Southern Business Institute of Art? <laughs> um, so two reasons. First of all, I felt like my photography, so I felt like my photography business wasn't really going anywhere at that mm -hmm. point. And I didn't really know how to, um, I just didn't really know how to run a business. And because I graduated um, UCL and I was like, right, I'm going to be a photographer now. Mm. Where do I start? Yes. <laughs> And that Literally. made you, that then what did you do? Did you just sort of use search engines to find things that combine, that taught you business, but not straight business school? I actually didn't even do that. It was, oh, it was so ragtag. And I think the worst part was, was that at UCL, I was extremely popular. So um, this isn't, <laughs> I know it sounds so full of myself, but the no, thing no, problem with that. But the problem with that was that I became incredibly entitled and I really lost touch with reality as a as a consequence. So like I didn't know how to um, run a business. I was very much like I kind of expected commissions to just fall at my feet because that was what happened to me at UCL. And I was like, oh, well, the real world's definitely going to be just like that. And it's it quite really easy. Wasn't. And I'm going to be the only one at the rugby match taking the pictures. So I'll have a monopoly on that and so on. Yeah, literally it was such a wake-up call um graduating and re and you know like being pushed out into the real world and it was also like because in theater there were so many established um photographers and they just did all of the musicals like um it was really difficult to get a foot in the door and like you know producers are incredibly busy people they meet like hundreds of people every day mm -hmm. so like getting them to remember you was a challenge yeah no i'm sure and you talking about your your business. I think you founded your company, which is Dante K Photography. Dante, yeah. I think, is a kind of brand name that you decided on. Uh, uh, and so it's Dante K Photography, just for listeners, because the websites are Dante K Photography. And you founded that in 2016, Dongmin. So can mm -hmm. you talk about your decision to found that photography company and maybe say something about how you created your first web platform and how you went about marketing? The work 
I, I don't know whether you were already doing that relatively successfully before you studied your master's degree in art business or whether the art business degree maybe maybe helped to along the way with that you know with I mean did it did it help you to kind of you know decide how to run your business to do a master's where you're talking about business honestly like my MA was crucial in forming the structure of my photography business and it taught me how to read and identify business landscapes and the economy so you know like I said when I graduated from UCL I just didn't have a clue I lacked um, the basic tools to analyze any kind of market infrastructures and um, how to pitch myself or even I didn't even know how to write business plans like <laughs> I was so clueless like looking back on it now I'm like what on earth made me think that I could run a business back then? Like, why did I think that was a good idea for me? I mean, now I'm actually loving it. And like, I'm actually getting the commissions and know how to um, know how to read the market. And I know how to navigate myself around the market. And, um, and yeah, I, I think I think that that part of your working life, we'll talk about art logic later on, but um, you do it all yourself, I think. You, you don't yeah. have any you haven't employed anyone else at all so that the dante photography is is your platform and you do everything would you could you just give the listeners some some idea about different what that involves so you so obviously you've got the kind of that you've got the, the working at the coalface is taking the photographs but how do you organize how is that all organized maybe you could say something about when you started being employed by richmond uh yeah. up and you know how does it work how did it work in terms of your career and then developing that into a business so i mean one thing that i did have right when i uh, when i graduated from ucl was that a lot of commissions will be um given on the basis of nepotism mm -hmm. um which i'm going to be really truthful here it is literally about whether the business has whether you know your client has faith in your abilities and also whether they will enjoy working with you. Because here's the thing, um, businesses are made, so work and you know business is just made so much more tolerable if you enjoy working with, if you um, enjoy working with the people around mm -hmm. you. And mm -hmm. also if you can um, get on with the people that you are working with. So that's really crucial um, element. Um, so what does a day, look like at Richmond for me I yeah, mean that's a good good way of describing it you know what what would you do in a typical weekend if when you're employed by are you actually employed by Richmond Rugby Club or a, yes yeah. I have a contract with them which I actually built thanks to my MA at Sotheby's <laughs> brilliant brilliant and and so there's a certain amount how does that contract work to is it a certain amount of hours or you 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 are in you're expected to come to both home and away games and be our yeah. be our official photographer yeah, so the um, contract stipulates that I should um, cover home and away matches. And mm. if I can't cover them because of sickness or because I'm not in the country, I, mm. I am then ultimately responsible for finding a replacement for them. <laughs> but that replacement also needs to be of a certain standard. Yeah, don't ask me. I <laughs> just though I'd like to go to the matches. Uh, <laughs> and um, um, so, yeah, and um, uh, so, may yeah, maybe you could talk about a game day yeah you know from, so, from the moment you get up in the morning and, and you know and talk about the equipment and, and and the experience that would be nice to hear yeah so actually prep for a game day starts like I don't know halfway through the week like because a game day isn't just simply about match action and because 
what's particularly special about Richmond is that it's not just simply um, a club that feels an elite men's team. It's a community, a community club. So we're trying to model it as like a safe space for families and, um, you know, a place for everyone can enjoy a certain level of rugby. And, um, and so that's also a really important thing to kind of bear in mind. And so usually like somewhere halfway through the week, the I'll have a catch up call with my boss, the media manager, and he'll take me through like um, anything that important that might be happening on the day. Like, for example, if we've got um, a school co uh, coming up, one of our, because we've partnered with a couple of schools in the local schools in the area to help develop um, children's rugby. Mm -hmm. And, um, or if any headline sponsors are there, or if, you know, we have like a player making his like first 15 debut. Mm. And <clears throat> so we get all of that in order. And then um, we also think about like, you know, how good are our chances against the opposition, that <laughs> kind of thing. And like, I can then get a, a more like mental kind of picture of where I probably need to be for most of the match and like how much I'll probably need to be, I'll uh, need to move around as a result. And then I also get sent the team sheet and I need to, um, team sheet ahead of the announcement so that I can create my metadata forms. So this is actually primarily how I protect my intellectual property, especially from like unscrupulous black brands or newspapers that might want to get free images, which they should rightfully pay for. Um, so metadata is like a type of um, technology application where you can add in loads of details about your, uh, about your photograph. Um, and it attaches itself onto the photograph. So when you right click on any photograph and then uh, click the um, get info selection, it shows who photographed it, when the photograph was created and you know who else or like what brands are visible in that photograph. And also like little descriptions, like, you know, Jimmy Litchfield runs out for his 50th cap for Richmond, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So is that, so you're, you're not talking about, you know, when I search for like photographs of art, um, you often see the like the Alamy thing or the Getty <laughs> thing that 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 presumably the moment and then when you if you actually purchase and pay for the work, they remove that. So um, do you have any kind of protection like that, or are you talking about a different kind of protection in intellectual property protection? So oh, I actually do have a watermark of instantly. It's a watermark. Sorry, that, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on all of my photographs on my website but yeah. the metadata that I was talking about yeah. um, isn't just simply a protective measure it also significantly reduces the hours that um, my boss and also some of our sponsors um, need to like trawl through like you know oh, I see <laughs> so you're putting like almost like keywords in so that they yeah it's essentially it. keywords yeah, yeah. <laughs> And if, looking, and if there's like um, a brand advert ad advertising hoarding in the background, mm -hmm. is that what you were referring to? That would yeah, be exactly. Information. Yeah, or like you know, if we've got like a brand, if we've got like a brand name, like on like the sleeves like or like on the um, yeah. chest, yeah, that's also something that needs to be yeah. um, flagged up on the. That's also something that needs to be flagged up in um, metadata. And, you know, when my boss is doing like Instagram call outs or like doing specific marketing um, posts, he can just simply search for um, the specific brand or the player and hey presto, his job is done. So that, that's all within the same database as the images themselves. So you that your these people would simply your media manager could simply go into your your database and make searches and they'll find both the images and the metadata. 
Yeah, so the metadata is all like attached to it. And like the great thing about my website's format is that um, when you open the photographs, you can see all the captions and then you can also like open up the menu to see more information and like ev all my metadata that I've input yeah. into it um, is shown there. And what would that include information about, you know, do you still use things like shutter speed and, you know, that people used to and, and focal length, all these kind of, you know, the technical things that mm -hmm. the type of camera you're using? I mean, are you allowed are you allowed on this kind of podcast to talk about brand names of cameras and, and, and equipment that you use? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's your so... favorite? Do you, do, you, do you have one camera or with lots of lenses or do you, do you have several? Could you talk about the equipment you use? So I'm actually um, quite behind in terms of um, how much equipment I have because most um, standard sports photographers will have two bodies minimum mm. and um, they'll carry with them like I'd say minimum three different lenses. So mm. for me, for a typical match to cover a typical match day at Richmond, um, I would need two uh, lenses. So I would have my what I like to call my God lens, um, the 24 to 70 millimeter. It's amazing because it's it's really good for um landscape photography and portraiture mm. and it yeah it can cover such a huge variety of subjects in so many different like in so many different like um in levels of intimacy as i like to call it and quite, is that quite a recent development because certainly we didn't have lenses like that when i was used to take photographs you'd either have like a telephoto lens or a wide angle lens for landscapes and things or a portrait lens and is this something that does all of that everything except for the telephoto bit because okay. the zoom's only um up to 70 millimeters sure. but like depending on how close the players are you could get lucky <laughs> yeah 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 and do you just use one body or do you have two bodies um i just have the one body unfortunately yeah, yeah. i do desperately need two bodies though why would you need two bodies? Because I, I can understand when when everything was analog, you'd you know I would actually take two cameras and I'd have um, I'd have transparency film and I'd have um, uh, what's the word you know the film that you make photographs from uh, two <laughs> types of film where you'd have you'd need two bodies for that. Um, whereas now with digital, why would you need two bodies? So when thinking of it from on the perspective of a rugby match. Um, for example, when a player is about to run in um, from yonder down the wing where you tend to hide, <laughs> um, <laughs> he like that's a good 80 meters covered. And, you know, as a player gets closer and closer, sometimes when I'm on, on my telephoto lens, it's zooming in way too intimately onto yeah. his face. Whereas, you know, when, you know, you've got a motion of really fast paced motion like that happening on you, you want to get the whole I personally want to get the whole body in. Um, so that's when I would need to switch switch lenses and then um, get the get the try that he's scoring. And the thing is with me, I don't just simply want to get a player scoring a try. I want to get like everything that's happening around him. Like, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the time there'll be like players um, celebrating in the background. Mm -hmm. You'll get, you know, photos of the crowd going wild as well. And, you know, you also want some contextual information because, for example, um, we have some branding on our on the um on the rugby posts so you want to get that involved like because you know that's incredible um advertisement for the brands like hi we help people score tries yeah for the sponsors and and, and so yeah exactly yeah, yeah do you remember um talking about 
you know, a telephoto lens get it's too intimate. It will just only like pick out, say, the face of the player. But you want the you want everything that's and that's what makes your photography so distinctive. I think that you've got this incredible sense of theatre with not just the key player, but other people who are involved and their Absolutely. responses and so on. Do you did you ever see the um, talking about kind of like art and film and photography? Do you remember the um, what was it, Philippe Pereno and Douglas Gordon's Zidane, the footballers' uh, art yeah. video? where they basically photographed uh, Zidane, the footballer, for a whole match. Um, but they only, the, the lens only ever looked at Zidane for the whole 90 minutes. Didn't look at any other players. Oh my <laughs> I, gosh, I didn't, I didn't hear about this. Real, you can actually get it as a DVD. And um, um, I, I, I know it quite well because um, the person who, the patron of the work who, who commissioned it was um, Patricia Sandretto, the great Italian art collector that, you might oh, remember yeah. visited her in Torino yeah, with Fondazione. So she and I remember she was showing that that film once when I took the students there. And um it's a remarkable film. But I, I I've been to like the cinema to see it, and there were all these football fans came in thinking it was going to be like a football film. And they all oh, my gosh. Out, they all walked out after about 20 minutes because literally the camera is just on him the whole time it's really and it's quite frustrating on one level but it's an amazing work of art on another I'm only I was just mentioning that because it almost seems to be the opposite and a kind of arty thing to do as to what you're doing which is equally artistic but you're interested in that broader landscape of what's going on around the player <laughs> yeah I used to not really be like that um but actually so little confession I need, do need to make uh, when you said, oh, you do everything on your own in my business. Mm -hmm. Technically, yes, but I did have significant help on how to um, build the structures up um, from my mentor, Ben Lumley, who's actually the photographer for England Netball. And he's completed a couple of commissions for England Rugby as well. Right. And yeah, he's off to the Commonwealth Games uh, next week, actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sure there's a kind of at least a small network of you that kind of you know, exchange ideas and, and so on in different kinds of sport photography? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I actually got a lot of help from the US, um, US female photographers I interviewed for my dissertation. Like we've, that was like two years ago when I reached out and, you know, talked to them about my dissertation idea and we're still in touch. We're still um, exchanging ideas and they've been so helpful for my business. Can you remind me what your dissertation topic was? So it was, um, oh gosh, what was the actual name of it? But it was um, a, did you but, do the practice space one where you create your own business plan? Oh no, so mine was um, the um, sports photography market for emerging and mid-level um, photographers in, mm. England, in English rugby and US college sports. That's right, who, who supervised that? Melanie Fash. Melanie, Melanie, who's now, yeah, who's no longer works with us. But yeah, no, I, I remember that she used to talk about how how interesting it was, you know, and how different it was. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. That, no, she was so helpful. And yeah. she actually did some like extra reading around it, which I really rate. And that was also another thing that I really enjoyed about Sotheby's was how open-minded the lecturers were to, uh, and the professors were to, um, you know, new ideas and wanting yeah. to read around them. I think we have to be because it's, you know, it's an, it's, it's an emerge if it's an academic discipline it's emerging it's not an accepted established academic discipline and also our students are coming like yourself with all sorts of different interests of their own uh, as you will remember from your fellow students so we have to kind of be pretty knowledgeable about everything I guess <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah what I was going to ask is um, if we're talking about your photography 
um, is, is all of your work only, exhibit, only ever exhibited online or have you ever exhibited in a physical space, i.e. with prints on the wall, as it were? So most of it is online and yeah. I'd say Instagram is currently my best platform, the best platform for my work because yeah. the response and engagement rate is the highest on it. Yes. And like, for example, I've had people I've never met sharing my work on the app where like um, I happen to like see them out and about and they they actually yell my Instagram handle at me and I'm like, oh my God, you actually know who I am. Yeah. Um, that being said, though, um, I have exhibited pub publicly a couple of times and um, thanks to Rugby Photographer of the Year, which is actually in the second year running. The first year running, I was just a finalist, but I still got to, um, I was still included in the exhibition at the um, the Rugby Museum in Twickenham Stadium. Fantastic. So it, yeah. yeah, so it's happened twice. And um, on a bit of a rogue note, like I also um, do, I also work for print publications like Rugby World Magazine and the Rugby World, uh, I mean, the Rugby Journal. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose that's another form of, exhibiting works in like a physical space essentially because Definitely. your work yeah uh, what about Vogue, Vogue magazine um uh, showed some of your photographs do you want to talk about how they approached you and what photographs were selected <laughs> okay so um there's a lot of uh on there's a lack of clarity in um photo vogue and how it works so basically photo vogue is an open platform that absolutely anybody can join in usually professionals tend to join it or like art photographers tend to join it mm. um I don't really think it's that popular amongst um hobbyists okay. or um <clears throat> or um photographers that work in commercial um commercial industries that aren't related to fashion or art necessarily and it's anybody can apply and every week you can submit two photographs and the editors of Vogue Italia actually pick the ones that they want to go through and the mm. ones that go through then um, are selected to be part, form part of the Vogue Italia archive. So if, uh, if for example, they did an, art, uh, an article on rugby, they can use my photograph. I see, I see. And is, yeah. is, is Photo Vogue related to Vogue? The, yes. Yes, yeah, that's what yes, I thought. So, oh, that's really interesting the way that yeah. works. Yeah, so it just yeah, so goes into an archive it. and then they will, they'll use that archive too. Um, but did, didn't, didn't some of your photographs appear in a print version of, Vogue magazine um oh no no not in a print version okay. but three photographs was, made it into the archive that's why the archive I understand yeah yeah and can you talk about those photographs because I think they were varied weren't they I think one was a rugby a women's rugby game at the Saracens if I remember a black and white photo. yeah it was great yeah. memory <laughs> well it, it's just it just that's what I was thinking of when you're saying about historical battles in old master paintings I remember that that image in particular because it just looks like people in the battle like women in the battle amazons perhaps <laughs> but they're all they've all got such different expressions and one of them you can see is alert probably the fly half who's waiting to pick up the ball to pass to the back <laughs> i don't know what was going on at that point but that there's an awful lot of in, theatrical interest in that photograph but there were a couple of others that i can't remember were in there so the first shot was actually the first one I got and you know what little confession it took me a year and nine months I think it was to finally get a shot approved in Vogue like and I was uploading every week yes yeah, so keep um, trying keep trying <laughs> literally yeah keep trying guys like yeah. key advice there so that first photograph was actually 
of me lying in this room here right now mm. underneath my GV and all you can kind of oh, see. Oh, that's right. That was the kind yeah. of co weird kind of RT COVID photo inside your, inside your room with a blanket over you. Yeah. And like, you can see my hair and you can see my, like that's my feet, right. my hands. I didn't like, realize that was you yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't really have any other models in so my did house. Did you just do a that. remote click? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did it on self-timer. Self-timer, so yeah, self-timer. I had 10 seconds to arrange yeah. myself under my duvet, and that was it. Actually, that's something that's disappeared in, in like, like smartphone photography. You, you, people use selfie sticks and things, but they you don't often see the self-timer anymore, do you? Um, oh, it depends. I, I, I haven't seen anyone for a long time using a self-timer with their smartphone. Um, It depends. Mm -hmm. No, I actually haven't seen them either. I yeah. haven't. I so obviously, with your kind of camera, you, 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 they're still incredibly useful. I guess you. I guess the problem with the self time with this mobile phone is by the time you get back to the mobile phone, it's going to have been nicked. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> you don't want to risk that. <laughs> what yeah. I was going to say is, um, talking about your style, if I can talk about that. I mean, as, as I said, as, an, as from my art, putting my art. Um, head on as it were um you you have a definite kind of artistic style of your own in your photographs and i i noticed particularly what seems to be an interest in lighting like including floodlit rugby you do quite a lot of that and like evening rock gigs where there's a lot of what in art historical terms we call chiaroscuro the italian term for light and shade made most famous i guess by caravaggio's paintings and um, so this and it's very dramatic and theatrical you know caravaggio we knew used a lot of photograph a lot of um theater effects of lighting and posing of his subjects to get that theatrical effect um but but also um an, an image that 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 might be maybe a more traditional art historical interest that you have in that kind of light and shade but mm -hmm. i was just going to move on to what one of the one of your instagrammed images that that people listening to this they look at I'll, I'll put your instagram handle uh, on the on the written information when we when we publish this um so they can look it up but there's there's an amazing image of um of james kane um in, in in playing for richmond rugby um which you state on the instagram and the caption is inspired by da vinci's leonardo da vinci's famous vitruvian man which for just to remind listeners that's the very famous art historical image of the uh the the bearded naked man inside a circle with his arms stretched diagonally showing that the human being is platonic it's centered on the platonic circle and square um and um but it also that image if you look at it is amazing because it also reminds me of futurism like early 20th century developments such as marcel duchamp's new descending a staircase where he almost has this kind of oh yeah that one shot camera you know multiple shot camera effect um so, so how did you how did you do that photograph? Um, what techniques were you using? Maybe they're so, easier than I, than they look. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the actual like process is, I mean, well, not the process, sorry. Um, so the actual like um, technique of it is like quite simple in that um, you can there's a selection on there's a there's an option inside your camera where you can um, set it to multi exposure. It's so multi -exposure it, yeah. yeah. So it put, stacks three images on top of each other. Well, you can choose like, I think up to like 50, <coughs> 15 images on top of each other. Yeah. But um, for that one, I just wanted to do three. And um, <coughs> pardon me. No, and Go and get a glass of water if you want. <laughs> I think I'm okay. I think it's subsided yeah. now. Yeah, there's um, a lot of pollution in this. You know, we're going about to have this mm -hmm. wave and there's a lot of- Oh God, there. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so um so the camera kind of did the work in terms of like 
putting uh, all the photos on top of each other. Oh. But the thing is, is you have to keep your um, hand so still. Oh. And yeah, and the subject can't move too much as in like yeah. it, he, uh, Kano couldn't uh, move forward or like move side uh, sideways too much. Otherwise, like he'd be off center. But it was just like pure luck that he managed <laughs> to like stay so still just to execute that one kick. And um because the problem is, is that because all the um, photographs are stacked on top of each other, if you move too much, then the background goes a bit awry and yeah. um, the background can also overexpose itself and the subject will wind up disappearing into the background, which is never great. And, and to what extent, uh, so the camera is doing a lot of the work, there's a bit of luck, but there's also your skill in in, 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 in seeing what you see. Um, and and do you, is there more work then to be done with something like Photoshop or you know, before you actually then present the, publish the photos, it were? So that photograph actually didn't require that much editing. Um, yeah. It just required a little bit of cropping because I wanted um, yeah. Kano to be in a bit of a square format, just like sure. the Vitruvian Man, essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think because like when, again, this circles back to ballet again, because a lot yeah. of the forms in ballet are very circular, like the way a ballerina moves their arms sure. and the way they move their legs. And I saw that as well when, you know, kickers take like the conversion kick in rugby. There's a lot of circular forms and I wanted yeah. to experiment with that. It's very balletic, isn't it, actually? Um, which is exactly. remarkable for such a kind of, uh, you know, physical or kind of violently physical game. As <laughs> but I, I guess a lot of contemporary ballet is actually quite like that. It's, it can become quite violent and so on, you know. Yeah, it can be really brutal and very gritty. And like, Definitely. you know, when you look... When you look at the kind of training and physical exertion that ballerinas put themselves through, like mm. it's really not at all that different from rugby. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um I've got a I've got a principal ballet dance from the Royal Ballet living in my road, actually, Steve McRae. Oh wow. But oh, so, gosh. so like, yeah. So, you know, and 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 you look at if you look at his Instagram, you you know, again, you've got these amazing photographs showing and I, I that's another thing that we don't think about a lot of the time with sport. We watch these matches and enjoy them we forget the amount of physical effort but also injury and pain that go particularly i think in being oh, a yeah. ballet dance with your toes and your feet you know an awful lot of kind of um energy goes into into the actual final uh, performance and i guess there's similarity really with therefore watching a ballet and the the risks that people are taking when they're on the stage just like they are on the rugby pitch absolutely and and, and another more if you like artistic image in in my in my opinion anyway is the well, I guess a lot of people's opinion, actually, because it won the award, is the photograph which won you that portrait category for Rugby Photographer of the Year Award in 2022, which um, just for the listeners, that uh, they, 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 we, I'll put a link to this image um, there for you. It's something that you must look at. It depicts basically the Bristol Bears. So basically, rugby teams, cricket teams in particular, have these... Um, have nicknames often often from animals and things and and so the Bristol <laughs> Bears it's just a way of kind of like branding the rugby team in a more kind of like you know commercial way I guess but anyway there um, I'm not going to say so she's a forward she's one of the heavier uh, people of the team as it were she's a prop in the front row of the um, of the of the rugby scrum which is the which is the most physical part of the rugby game the one that I've tried to avoid um, her name's <laughs> Simi her name's Simi Pam and um, she debuted for the Barbarians, we spoke about them earlier, that international um, invite, invitation team, the women's team, when they won the Kill It Cup, uh, which is between South African Springboks, as they're called, and the Barbarians. Um, I think it takes place every year. 
Um, and, yeah. and, and Dong, then you will remember that day, I'm sure, because I remember it, because the men's barbarians match against Samoa was, was I think, due to start in Twickenham, which is the great rugby ground in, 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 in England, um, the centre of rugby where the museum is, where Dong Min said her photograph was exhibited. Um, and it was cancelled at the last minute because of COVID infection. So everyone was in the ground. All the fans are coming to the ground and waiting to see the men that mm -hmm. took pop. And it was cancelled at the last minute, as I understand it. And the women's match, um, which um, Simi Pan was playing in for the women's barbarians against the South African women, was due to follow the men's. Um, but it was brought forward because they cancelled yeah. the men's match. So arguably it kind of had a much larger or potentially had a much larger crowd because I suspect a lot of the crowd having watched the men's match would have probably left before the women's match. But maybe you could say more about that. Would they have left or, you know, was that an opportunity for these women? And then we'll come on to the photograph. <laughs> yeah, so um, I would say like traditionally when like on in double headers, when a women's match follows the men's match, like people do tend to go home. And also it is, a, you know, like it's an 80 minute long, I mean, Rugby matches last 80 minutes, like yep. it's a long affair. It's like yep. a big day out. With an interval as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um <clears throat> and some uh, most people do tend to just be there just for the men's. Yeah. Um, but I'd say like that was actually one of the best platforms for women's rugby to then grow their audience and um also not convince necessarily, but show the um fans of the men's game that the women's game is just as entertaining. It has yeah. just as impressive a level of physicality to it as the men's game. And yeah. it's definitely worth watching for. Because the crowd numbers, I think, for the women's game were 29,500, which is like half the capacity of Twickenham, if I remember, which mm -hmm. is about 70,000. So were, were there 70,000 people in there and half of them left when they realised the men's game? Or, or were there any, because it was, co was it a coming out of COVID that, yeah, so that was actually the first um, like international series that was um, that was, was open to public yeah. Yeah. after lockdown. Um, but it was also around that really weird time when Omicron was starting to like rear its ugly head. Yeah, and so I think they didn't actually lose that many lose that many um, fans from that uh, from that cancellation. Yeah, so it's um, about, so they pretty much stayed in there and enjoyed the women's game, which um, the barbarians won. Yeah. One, uh, I think Simi actually scored a try. I watched some of the highlights the other day, actually. <laughs> and um, but but uh, they they won it by a lot. I think they won it quite. Yeah, I think another reason for that is because um, South Africa currently don't have professionalized don't have a professionalized setup. They oh. actually lack an elite uh, domestic league, unlike here in the UK where we've got an elite domestic league, and in the US they have an elite sevens domestic league. So the mm. um, abbreviated version of a rugby union that's usually played in the summer for our listeners um <clears throat> and the barbarians was actually made up of like quite a few um england internationals welsh internationals and u.s internationals all of whom have been supported by an elite setup whereas south africa isn't so that's also a really big um reason for the difference in scoreline mm. would you say that the the, the united kingdom um, is is pretty much up front in terms of um, professionalizing women's sports. I mean, it always feels like that to <clears> me when you when in... you hear about other nationalities. <clears throat> it looks as though the British are actually that's one thing that they're pretty good at is is bringing the women's game, um, and making it more professional and serious as a spectacle. 
So I actually don't know in terms of other um, sports. I just know with rugby that we're really good with that because yeah. England women were the first um, nation to have professionalised contracts. And yeah. um, now Wales and Scotland have followed suit. Italy is also um, following yeah. suit as well. So like that's great news for the women's six yeah. nations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just I'd say the UK as a whole is probably quite far ahead in rugby at least. Yeah, yeah. Because in football, of course, you've got this is interesting as well, that you've got in the women's football, when it's the World Cup, it was the <laughs> United States women's team that won. And we don't think of the United States as being such a big thing with men's football. So that's also very, very interesting that that that, that is being kind of promoted in a big way in the oh. United States as well. Yeah, no, like Angel City um, FC, the LA women's team is so popular and yeah. it's it and you know the standard of the football game like I've watched a couple of highlights is meant to be unreal for it yeah and coming back to your photograph anyway that so the photograph <laughs> um that that won Don in that that photo portrait photographer of rugby of the year it shows Simi Kim Simi Pam sorry <laughs> this the, the, the rugby <laughs> standards standing alone it's amazing photograph she's standing alone on the touch line on the edge of the pitch at Twickenham in a now empty Twickenham Stadium, there's no longer a crowd there, holding um, the silver Killick Cup by its lip in her left hand. It's, it's, a, it's almost like she's holding a child's hand. And the, the image is surprising because of the lack of fans or fellow players in what is meant to be a moment of celebration, I guess. So it's a non-orthodox view of celebration. And it, I think it's further enhanced on men by being seen from behind. So Simi's gaze is totally hidden. We can't see her face at all, just her amazingly physically fit muscular body can you talk more about how that image came about was it posed did <clears throat> Simi like it and um, why did it win the prize according to the judges <laughs> so um you know what I'm not even sure where the inspiration for that came from <laughs> like um it all just made sense visually for me just in that one moment because um Simi was uh Simi and I were actually talking on the pitch at that point and she was actually standing in front of the iconic English Tudor Rose um which you can see at her feet in the photograph oh. and um just and you know I don't know if anybody here has been to Twickenham but if you've ever been pitch side and it's dark but the pit, uh, but the floodlights are on like the illumination is pretty spectacular like it's really really it's a really great environment to be creating in and <clears throat> so with um so like all of that put together and I just was like this would make a great photograph but the fun thing was was that Simi was actually facing me at that point and I and she was holding the cup and I told her can you turn around and look into the lights and that was that was literally it that was how I took that moment and um what else was there? Well, did she so, like it? <laughs> yeah, she loved it. She absolutely loved it. Like she um, just loves having any excuse to share it on social media again. And mm. she was absolutely thrilled for me when um, I won the uh, won the category with that photograph. And yeah, and of course, it's good for her <clears throat> for her as well that you won it. I mean, that's another thing about when when a famous artist in the in art history paints a portrait of a famous person, they're built they're they're borrowing from one another's fame. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I feel like it's definitely me um, benefiting off of Simi much more, well, though. <laughs> well, I'm sure she feels the same way. Um, and, and, and before we talk about Art Logic at the, the, the end of the podcast, um, uh, Domin, uh, most people wouldn't associate the art world that, that, that you and I have been involved in, you know, mm -hmm. 
particularly in your time at, at Sotheby's Institute, uh, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't associate the art world with something like rugby. Um, and and the England rugby player, as you know well, <clears throat> Maro Itoji, he's a well known collector of um, contemporary art. This is he's a male uh, England rugby player. Um, and he, he collects contemporary art and he famous, the, the, the reason I know about this is because he curated a, a selling exhibition for Sotheby's London, the auction house of contemporary portrait paintings, many by African artists. Could, can you talk a little bit more about Maro as, as a player and art collector? Because as I say, many people wouldn't associate that kind of sport with particularly rugby, I think with liking art. <laughs> Um, you know what? Hilariously enough, I'm actually a huge fan of Maro Otoje. He's actually my favourite England men's player. Mm. Um, but I think that's more so because he's a rugby player who's deeply involved in the arts in quite a unique way. Because I don't know if you watched that video interview he did with Sotheby's in the run up to that exhibition that he cur curated for their auction. Yeah, it's probably um, but... still on the <clears throat> website as well if people wanted to see it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he actually says in that interview that he personally prefers to enjoy art mainly for aesthetic reasons, mm. but he's also, but like, you know, he's also acutely aware of how movements in the art world and developments in the art world can help elevate like social justice causes in a really pragmatic, really powerful and effectual way. And mm -hmm. he's done just that because he's very um, passionate about, about gaining more equity for black individuals across all different cultural sectors, not just simply rugby. Mm. And it's actually funny because that's exactly how my dad and I primarily enjoy art and in a way it makes art so much more accessible. And I had this exact same conversation with Anthony Watson. So he's also another England men's player and he's actually quite close teammates with Maro. So Anthony actually said that he always felt like he couldn't enjoy art because he wasn't really allowed to, because he, when he was like faced with a work of art, he doesn't really know where to begin to, um, you know, where to begin essentially, because he's like, am I supposed to, understand this am I supposed to be educated by this like um what am I supposed to be, be be feeling right now essentially he didn't really have the same sort of attitude like well not attitude but he didn't seem to kind of realize that he could just do what Maro does which is you know look at the work and enjoy it for what it is I think it's a little bit like going to the opera that the, the, there is this shield that for whatever reason has been built and a lot of people think oh I've got to be educated or I've got to really understand it and therefore that kind of they don't like it because they they think it's kind of something above them it's a strange <laughs> sound when you first go to the opera and I think I think that's true about a lot of contemporary art probably it had I think one and and we've talked about this in in the course of the institute um you know in the 90s contemporary art was very difficult you know or or, or before the 90s one might say and one of the big changes I think in contemporary art in the new millennium has been the YBAs, Damien Hurst and, and people like Tracy Emin, Damien Hurst, that mm -hmm. are really making art a lot more accessible. It's quite poppy, it's easy to look at, it's fun a lot of the time, but at the same time, I think it's deeply serious, you know, beneath that, that surface. So I think it has become like an easier thing and a less elitist thing in some Absolutely. ways, but as you know, it's still obviously highly elitist in other ways, especially because of the kind of prices people are spending. Uh, on uh, every day, really, on online auctions of, of, of uh, contemporary art, Sotheby's, Christie's, Phillips Bonhams, and so on. And, and, and anyway, Dongmin, you're still working in the art world. You, I think you start. You got a job with Art Logic earlier in the year. Do you want to tell yeah, us more about how you got that and what that in, entails, and how that might, how might, how that might work with your 
other job, your weekend job of photographing rugby in the future? Hold that thought just for one second. I just need to let my dog out. No, do. <laughs> Adolmin's just letting her dog out. Adolmin actually lives in Wimbledon, which isn't that far away from myself. Um, my yeah. Dog. My my dog has actually been very good. She's she's a two year old, very very. Um, oh yeah, drift. Border collie drift. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. So she's, she's um she's amazingly she she seems to know when I'm doing things like these podcasts to leave me alone for a bit. So she's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, Soda was like napping here the entire time, but I think just Soda. right now. Yeah, yeah. Lovely name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, art, art logic. Tell us about what art. I I introduced it earlier on the tech. Um, company and we've we've had people like Joe coming in to lecture to the students in the past. Oh really, Joe Elliott's coming in. Yeah. Oh he no no great. he has done in the past. I haven't seen him for a couple of years now, but he he's been quite a regular contributor to the the, the Masters Art Business Program. He's oh, a great really? guy. <laughs> I've yeah, been no, sometimes really nice. at art business conferences and so on. But but tell us about the job you're doing there. So I currently work at Client Liaison, so I'm essentially on the front lines of um, their customer service, uh, their customer service department, mm -hmm. and um, well, Client Liaison department, but for those of you who might not understand what that is, it is customer development, uh, customer service, but um, teaching our um, clients how to use a product and um, handling client queries and issues, because as many people are probably aware the art world was very resistant towards technology until the pandemic and um so a lot of people are just only recently kind of hopping on board like um <clears throat> digital solutions for their galleries and for art fairs and for any of their art businesses essentially and so i help people with um some of the, i help people with um their minor issues like um if their website isn't working or if they just uh, or they might struggle with some of the aspects of our um, database and uh, some of our products. Mm. And it's been a lot of fun actually, because, well, first of all, getting to know the product that they, that ArtLogic has built is just incredible. Like um, it's such a multifaceted product that has taken into consideration every um, possibility in art business and the art market and, it's got every uh, option there. It's just so thorough, incredibly thorough. Mm -hmm. And this is a this is a, a, a an online product that that you 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 would pay for if you're a client. And, yeah. Um, basically, it helps you to run any art business. Yeah, it literally does. It stores your artwork. It help your artworks. It um, organizes all your um, client contacts. And it also helps you market some of the events that you do. And it also helps you set up online exhibitions. There is so much to yeah. it. Now, I remember Joe speaking about it. So have they given you, I'm sure all the listeners will be want to know, have you, have they, because you're now working for them, have they given you a subscription to it? They actually, okay, so this is a thing that they're doing with um, all of their um employees is that we get given like one of their baby databases to work uh, to work on and also to keep after we leave well, brilliant and does yeah. that work that will work for you the baby version yeah i think it will like particularly <laughs> because i want to actually sell some of my um yeah. sell some of my work um in the near future and also yeah. um and also like hopefully exhibit them so like logging their details and like logging like their provenance as well will be a lot of fun today and um yeah, so obviously it's probably quite 
unique working a tech job in the art world and then working as a photographer for elite rugby in the weekends and the evenings and then um when like apropos that don min um if if i wanted to purchase like the photograph i was talking about the one that's in the vogue archive is that (laughs) is that now owned do they now own the copyright for that photo or do you still own that would you be able to sell a print oh no i still own the copyright for that like they've just got the right then to use that and reprint that yeah 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 so basically do you do you 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 do sell some of your work to just interested people that you don't even know yeah I have actually sold um a lot of my rugby photos to I mean these are more as like personal keepsakes and mementos or in the case of certain players ego (laughs) um yeah I was going to say the players themselves presumably purchased them yeah, it's a lot of parents as well, because yeah. um, last season when we played, when Richmond played against Saracens, I had loads of orders come in from loads of very proud parents, which was quite cute. And if you're photographing Richmond against another side, say, which is obviously going to be the case always, like Saracens, are you allowed to photograph the Saracens and sell images of them to Saracens? But, you know, does that, is that a problem? Um, I don't think so. It's definitely not been a problem for me. There's no regulation right now yeah, under me that says yeah. you can't do that. Yeah. Um, like for example, during the Barbarians game, like whilst obviously my main priority was the Barbarians, like yeah. I couldn't not grab a portrait shot of Marcus Smith when he was like only like three meters away from me. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. That's so. I, I guess Richmond's rugby club probably wouldn't like it if you started producing too many photographs of the other side. Oh no, yeah, of particularly course. when they're beating them. <laughs> <laughs> no of course not so you have to be a bit tactful about that but there's no oh, rules. Yeah. there's no rules about that currently there aren't any um yeah. media guidelines i guess or- so long as you're doing the yeah. job for richmond and taking photographs of their players primarily and then what else, what you what else you do is up to you really yeah, exactly um as long as i'm doing as long as i'm you know completing mm-hmm. the brief sent by yeah. Richmond, which yeah. by the way, there's never really any like a succinct brief. Um, it's just one that we kind of make up as we go along, depending yeah, on it's creative. how it's creative. It's great that they allow you to be so creative that they're not just getting you to do the rather dull reportage mm-hmm. shots as I'd seen and that yeah. they do, um, that they do like, they, I think they appreciate the art in your, in your photographs, basically. Um, yeah, that's one of the things I um, really rate about working at Richmond. They're very, um, liberal about um, how I create and they don't like because there are some clubs that have demanded that you take mm. at least 100 action shots which would honestly bore me to tears <laughs> um, but yeah they've been very appreciative of the kind of fresh perspective that I bring into them and um, you know <clears throat> some players have been like very um, very mostly the women um, have been like quite fascinated to learn a bit more about the art world thanks to my photos. Interesting interesting and um, so thinking about the future are you presumably now you're you're in the summer break and you'll be preparing for your you, you've got your art logic job in the in the weekdays but you'll be preparing for the new rugby season coming up and um do you have any other kind of ambitions at the moment are you just coming out of covid like the rest of us and trying to re <laughs> regroup um i'm trying to regroup but i'm also trying to like set some goals for the future mm. so um in the immediate future, so I definitely want to shoot for a Premiership Standard Club at some point. Um, 
Yeah, just to explain that to the listeners, um, Richmond are currently in the what we call the championship, which if you know football, we've got the Premier League, the which used to be Division One when I was a kid. And then Division Two is now the championship. And the same with rugby, I think you've got the Premier Rugby League and Richmond are in the championship. So you'd like to maybe work for one of the Premier sides. I hope, yeah, I hope your Richmond colleagues don't aren't listening to this. And <laughs> no, they they're very maybe, maybe they're hoping to get to get um, converted into the get promoted <laughs> rather converted sounds like a religion to get which is, <laughs> to get promoted into the Premier League. Maybe you could help them. <laughs> I don't know how much how far my photography could carry them. I don't really know whether my influence could ever grow that much. It'd be really cool if it did, though. <laughs> well, you never um, know. <laughs> Yeah, actually, that's one of the things I really rate about Richmond is that they're very understanding of my um, of my ambitions. Like there's, and they're also very understanding of players' ambitions because we've had some uh, players that became incredibly successful that um, moved on into the um, into the Premiership, like Lewis Liner, for example, who now represents England. Um, he actually started off as a in the youth section at Richmond, and then yeah. he was on loan from Harlequins to us yeah. for a seat actually the season before COVID and you know they were very much under the understanding of like he's with us to help build his foundation and then he will um go fly very very far and it's a big problem with having a with having a a, a championship side in as in the football that you're <clears> any good players tend to be poached by the Premier League teams who have a lot more money yeah oh yeah absolutely but then you'd be surprised because like with at Richmond, um, there's just something about the club being a really nice, you know, safe family space, like I said so before. And we've had some players actually turn down premiership um, contracts, like Will Warden, for example, who was one of our captains. Like he got um, scouted multiple times by different um, prem clubs and he's never once taken on, up any of their offers. So, yeah, no, yeah. They, they always get these players uh, through and through and I'm never going to leave, you know, <laughs> United I'm Leeds born and bred you get that kind of <laughs> yeah it it is quite nice and it's quite I think it's quite unique to Richmond in a way mm. um but yeah I'd love to work for a premiership club one day and then at some point I would love to make my mark on the uh, U.S. major league rugby scene interesting interesting yeah. what about England rugby <laughs> Um, I would oh god that would be a dream come true <laughs> and then of course of course we've seen there that because it's summer and very very hot too hot to play rugby at the moment <laughs> in the UK of course over, over recent days we've seen these amazing successes with um uh, not so much Wales but we, we we saw England beating Australia in Australia yesterday and we yeah. saw Ireland beating the New Zealand All Blacks that for listeners All Blacks are generally considered the best rugby union national team in the world so uh, there's maybe changes afoot <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't really see any changes happening for the Red Roses or the women's um, England team. Yeah. Um, at least not in the next, like, probably three or four seasons at least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'd love to get a, uh, an England uh, rugby commission one day, um, mm. particularly for the Six Nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that and that could be that could be the the. <laughs> The men's game which we decided that we weren't going to but but the red roses are the are the women's sink and yeah beautiful <clears throat> it's such a great name yeah it is um, it's very like, the li- like the lionesses with the england uh women's football team exactly um i'd say in the like later future so yeah. um there's two things i desperately want to do one yeah. of them is to shoot the olympics Oh wow! And yeah, I'd love to shoot the Olympics for um, U.S. rugby sevens. Yeah. And for 
and I'd love to because the 2028 Olympics are actually going to be held in LA and I'd wow. love to um, shoot surfing for that. So so what how would you do that would you actually approach them and with your CV and a portfolio of your images and say would you consider me? Um, I guess I'd, I'd first have to um, scout out what the surfing scene is like in mm. um, in LA, for example, mm. and then find out league structures, mm. find out who the internet, who I need to speak to in the international teams. A lot of the time it is just find, a matter of finding out who the media manager is. Mm. But first, I need to get good at surfing photography. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, surfing is a that's another ball game in terms of, um, pardon the pun, in terms of like photography, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you need like a whole different roster of equipment because you need to make sure your equipment's all waterproof. And you also need to make sure you're safe because some of those waves can be quite, uh, mm. yeah, quite tricky yeah. to handle. No, definitely, yeah. definitely. Anyway, <clears throat> Don, I'm suddenly looking at the time and our listeners, it's, uh, uh, you know, we've, 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 we've gone on, probably this could have been two, but I think I'm going to, part of me thinks, shall I split this? But part of me thinks, it, I think it is really, really interesting. I, I think most listeners, I hope, will still be with us by this stage or you know, <laughs> go out and listen to the second half. So um, it, it is a longer uh, podcast than usual, but I think that's because we've had so much to talk about. And it, I think, I think for the listeners, it's just really, really interesting to hear about the way uh, this quite unusual if you like subgenre of art photography as I'd see what you're doing is of, of rugby which is the last thing you'd associate with art but as we come full circle and we've seen that there are there are important famous rugby players who are now art collectors and um so you know it's a it's a it's an interesting new world I think for our listeners to to think about and um uh yeah anyway I'd just like to thank you on behalf of all the listeners Don Min for for being for being my guest this week on the art business podcast and um best wishes in the future and no doubt we'll have you back um, to see how you're doing once you're in the Premier League or once you've done your surfing photos. <laughs> <laughs> oh thanks so much for having me I've really enjoyed um, having this like almost catch up with you again. And... Yeah absolutely it's a, <clears throat> it's a great pleasure. <laughs>